Hello, and welcome to the Still To Be Determined podcast, the podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I am the older brother of Matthew Farrell, and I am a writer, and I will be your host and question asker. <laughs> I'm here for you, and I'm here for him, the him being Matthew. Matthew's right here. Say hello. <laughs> hello, everybody. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about the most recent episode of Matthew's YouTube channel. And the reason I had that strange, awkward pause in the middle of that sentence is I realized this is not the most recent episode. That's right. We skipped a week. <laughs> we skipped a week because he did a quick follow-up to the Tesla battery announcements. So he effectively had two episodes in one week. This was the first episode of the week, which was on September 22nd, 2020. It is the truth about solar panels. Do the pros outweigh the cons? And my first question to you is, how do you become a professional solar panel? <laughs> I'll let you think about that <laughs> as we move on to some of my other questions. <laughs> These questions and more. That's right. <laughs> you want it hard still to be determined. <laughs> you want the hard questions to be asked? Well, Sean's here to ask them. <laughs> the main thrust of your episode was around the energy that goes into the production of solar panels, is that outweighed by what they will produce in their lifetime? It's a very easy answer, yes. And <laughs> yeah. I'd be surprised how many people ask the question of like, well, they don't earn back as much energy as they take to make. It's like, uh, yeah, my, my <laughs> math, my, my immediate response to you raising that question was, but how could anybody ask that question? You'd be surprised. That would be ridiculous <laughs> if it was realistically, but there's no way that could happen. Like who would be making them for any reason then? Anyway, uh, the second part of your analysis was around what happens when they've reached the end of their useful life and how does that get unwound both from an energy consumption standpoint, which I thought was an interesting take, you know, the energy that it would take to go into taking these, these things apart. And mm -hmm. then also the environmental impact of the, what do you do? Do you recycle? Do you just landfill? I was uh, surprised actually by the landfill yeah. analysis. Yeah. I'll be honest. It hadn't occurred to me that a group of people interested in solar panels as a means of energy production would take that route. It just seemed like Aren't all the people pushing for this the people who would say, well, we definitely can't landfill it. But then your analysis demonstrating how small an impact it would have from a landfill perspective was very yes. surprising to me. Yes. And I guess there's that aspect of I almost in my mind think of them like a battery, like they'd have mm -hmm. a lot more chemicals. They'd have a lot more toxic stuff. Well, they do. I mean, there, there's there's things like lead in there that you don't want leaching into the groundwater. So, I mean... Yes, but they're all in, encapsulated. So right. even if there there's if there's cracking in those you know surfaces, the amount that leaches out is so insignificant. It's it was surprising to me when I was reading into this. I was like, oh my! I I thought it would be like a disaster if you put these yeah. in the landfill, and it's yeah. it's not. I was just, I was shocked. <laughs> so I was like, even if you can't, if even if the math doesn't work today to recycle them. 
you could technically put them in a landfill and then later dig them back up when it does become profitable and necessary right. to do that. Right. So <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, less worried now. You were talking about the 2040s being when we'll have our first big wave of a large number of solar panels hitting the end of their useful life. Do you have any idea of what those numbers are? Is there a, maybe there's two ways of looking at it. I don't know that you actually would know like the raw numbers of, oh, it's potentially this many, but do you know what the spike is in the sudden increase in use of solar panels? It, it was it was exponential growth over the two okay. thousands. It was it was a huge like if you're talking about the early two thousands, twenty tens, early twenty tens, it, it was a massive spike. So it's not a small wave that's coming in like the twenty forties. It's mm-hmm. it's it's going to be big, which is concerning. <laughs> we, need, we need to make sure we have things in place, but that gives us basically a decade or more to really just start to ramp things up, which is plenty of time. And there's already governments and companies working on that. Right. And as I brought up in the video, it's like the EU, I think their policy is actually super smart, how they're basically lumping it in with batteries as Mm. kind of like telling companies, you made it, you're responsible for it, which I think is super smart. So it means that the companies that make the panels have to be responsible for how they end of life their panels which will force them to invest in recycling and disposal and all of that kind of stuff. And it also means that those prices for the recycling are passed on to the consumer, the people buying the panels. So if it costs them five bucks to recycle a panel, that five bucks is going to be rolled into the cost of the panel up front. Right. So to me, it's like, yes, absolutely. That's the way it should be done. We should be looking at these full life cycle. A, a, a company shouldn't just be say, I only care about the costs of making it. And once they're at the door, not my problem anymore. Right. By forcing companies to have to deal with it, it really is a super smart way to address it. Right. Um, and so I really hope the United States follows something similar. Because and then it, we, we can have, also we create right the consumer whiplash of what do you mean I have to pay for something yes. that maybe in some cases the person didn't even install. Correct. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where if you buy a house and suddenly it's, oh, it's full of asbestos. Like I didn't even put it in, but now I have to own the cost of removing it. And and this would be analogous to that. Yeah. In a related question, it's the here comes the wave of panels that will reach the end of their useful life. Is there a floor to the inefficiency of a solar panel. And what I mean by that is in the comments, Muppet Keeper, which I love as a username, wrote, the University of Sheffield in the UK has solar panels over 40 years old. They are still producing over 70% of their rated power. These panels were made badly compared to modern panels. So I'd say we're looking at 40 years out of panels if you don't mind a drop off in power. Most Mm -hmm. modern panels will stop degrading at around 80%. Is there potentially a floor where panels might not be as efficient, but the response might be, well, we still get something out of them? Yeah, absolutely. So that's another one of the things that I love in my solar panel videos where people comment, well, you know, they're 15 years, you have to replace them all. It's like, who says I have to replace them in 15 years? The warranty in your car doesn't mean your car stops working when the warranty's over. 
Like you have a five-year warranty in your car and when the five years hits, you're like, oh, that's it. Got to get a new car. It's like, that's not how it works. Solar panels are warrantied for 25 years. Like the ones on my roof are 25 years. doesn't mean they stop working in 25 years. I could keep them up there for 40 years. And it's just like, okay, yeah, I'm making 80% or even 75% of what it made when they were new. But hey, if they're still working and it's giving you the energy that you want out of them, why replace them? It's completely up to you. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, Ricky from the YouTube channel, Tuba Da Vinci, actually put out a video where he expanded his solar panel installation on his roof. And the way he did it was he bought used commercial solar panels from Mm. a commercial solar farm that were being replaced. They were being end of life. And so he bought used solar panels which were interesting because they're slightly larger than the residential solar panels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they they didn't quite like size-wise fit up with his current ones. But the efficiency, yeah, there was a, you know, they're not 100%. They're whatever they are, you know, 85%. You know, it, but they still make energy and they mm-hmm. cost him dramatically less than brand new. So it's, he bought used panels knowing they're not going to be giving me as much as a brand new panel would be, but he's totally fine with that. That was a question I was going to ask you based on the comment from the Spud McKenzie, another great username. If anyone has any solar panels they want to get rid of, send them my way. I can't find any old ones cheap locally. There's too much money in recycling. So my question was, have you, and you already answered this question because of your, uh, your reference to the other YouTuber, but the secondary market must also be growing. And will probably grow exponentially as we move forward if the usage of the first users grew exponentially in the early 2000s. Yeah, no, you're gonna you're gonna see this increase. I think there's probably like what Ricky did with the commercial panels. I think is probably the most likely area you'll see this grow first because commercial installations they they want to they have they want and have to hit certain energy needs, so they're going to be swapping them out on a probably more reliable basis which means there's going to be commercial panels hitting the used market probably on a regular interval where homeowners might be willing to put up with the low efficiency and will just hang out with their current panels for 40 years. So I think there's probably more likelihood of what Ricky did where you're buying used commercial panels more than residential panels. That's just, that's a theory. I have no idea if that's going to trying to be true, but right. I think there, it's like the used car market. It's like, there's not a huge used EV market yet, but it's growing because as more EVs hit the roads and they're out longer, we'll start to see they grow. It's the same thing for panels. Shifting gears now into the environmental impact of the production. And one of the things you talked about was CO2 capture in the panels themselves. And I thought there was a very interesting comment from Andy Fletcher. Andy, you need to work on your username game. Because... <laughs> In the wake of the Spud McKenzie and Puppet Keeper, Andy Fletcher just sounds like an actual name. (laughs) Andy writes, one aspect of embedded CO2 in panels is that it is critically dependent on the energy sources during panel manufacture. If you use gas-produced electricity, then it works out at about 450 grams per kilowatt hour for the primary power during manufacture. This then shows up as a high embodied CO2 cost per panel. However, you use solar panels to produce the power to manufacture the panels. Then you are down at around 40 grams per kilowatt hour, which means the embodied CO2 in the panel is correspondingly lower. If you then repeat this process using the new panels to produce power for the next generation, then the figures drop again as you ratchet downwards. 
you cannot do this if you're using fossil fuels to produce the energy to manufacture the panels. And I thought that was a very interesting yeah. thing to keep in mind. And it, and it, in following with your measurement of how much energy it takes, how long it will take for a panel to pay for itself. And it was, how many years was it? Four years? Like three, three to four years for right. current panels. Right. And I started thinking like, okay, well, if in three to four years you have that panel's paid for itself and that panel lasts 10 times as long, then effectively you could argue that that panel has helped create 10 panels. And each mm -hmm. of those 10 panels could have created 10 panels in their lifetime. <laughs> so <laughs> now you have 100 panels have been created and it's exponentially growing as yep. more people use panels than the overall energy consumption is lowering the CO2 impact. And that's something that hadn't occurred to me, that it's not just a linear measurement. It's actually an exponential movement. Yeah, it's it's the exact same thing can be said of EVs when people say, well, you're still charging your you know car off of coal, so it's not really helping. And it's like, it's like, no, it actually is helping from day one. It's more, you know, less CO2 than a fossil fuel car from day right. one, even on coal. But then as you go to natural gas and then you go to renewable energy, it's like your EV gets cleaner and cleaner over time as the grid energy source changes. And you right. can't say that of fossil fuels. It's the same thing for solar panel production. It's, it's kind of a fascinating thing where you can kind of say, no, this will absolutely get better over time. <laughs> yeah. And that meshes with the argument that you and I have talked about at this point in almost every episode of the podcast, which is the argument that you shouldn't do a thing unless you can do it 100% across the board in every yeah. area is a spurious argument. It is. It's absurd. It's an argument that's absurd. And it's an argument that's meant to distract. It's mm -hmm. meant to, it's, it's setting up a a straw man at the end who is like, well, you still have other things that are problematic instead of saying every little piece helps. It would be analogous to saying, well, you shouldn't try and fight cancer because you'll still have heart disease. And <laughs> like, no, overall health is ultimately the goal and you have to approach it in all these different ways. Yeah, It's not just like, well, what's the point of avoiding fats if I'm not exercising? Well, there's still a health benefit to avoiding fats. A lot of times when I see these comments on my videos, I see them a lot. In fact, I just had one last week that was kind of like, I just had to do a big eye roll, which was on my solar panel nine months later video. They commented, I stopped listening as soon as you said carbon footprint, to which mm -hmm. I responded to them, it's a good thing you're keeping an open mind. It's trigger words. The facts don't fit your narratives. You're cherry picking your viewpoint you have to look at the full picture. You have to look at everything. You can't just go in going, I think solar panels are a scam. And so I'm only going to listen to this one thing you said. And then you, this other thing you said, I don't believe in, which means everything you say is false. Um, it's people are cherry picking their facts. And also I'm wondering, and, yeah, how can carbon footprint be a trigger word? <laughs> it's a trigger word for people that don't believe in climate change. So as soon right. as you say carbon footprint, they have, uh, there's a lot of people out there that have supposedly disproven carbon footprint as a, you know, super left, 
you know, tree hugging line of BS that doesn't really mean anything because humans aren't causing climate change. So if you mm. say carbon footprint, that means you're a lefty, crazy, radical, whoosie what's it's on the side of renewables. And it's, 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 it's funny to me because those same people will say to you, oh, get triggered much. And all you have yeah. to do is say carbon footprint and they lose their minds. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. But one comment on that is, well, I find that absurd it's like I've been learning what those trigger words are and I've been deliberately trying to not use them because one of the goals of my channel is to try to reach out to as many people as I can right? to make sure that they do listen to the full argument because there might be something in there that, that does resonate with them. And I just finished writing a script for my solar panels two years later, which will be coming out soon. And in there, I deliberately didn't use carbon footprint and when I described the goals of getting solar panels, I described it in a slightly different way that mm -hmm. hopefully shouldn't cause that trigger reaction because my goal is I want these people to watch the whole video. I don't want them to check out after 30 seconds when they hear me say carbon footprint, <laughs> if that makes sense. It does make sense. A quick comment from Brent. Brent, you're in the same boat as Andy. <laughs> Step up your username you, The username game. It's real. He touched on the regulatory aspect, which you mentioned you're hopeful that the U.S. regulation around the recycling or ownership of responsibility will follow in the same vein as the EU. Mm -hmm. Brent touches on that, the difficulties here in the States. We have so many layers to governmental regulation from the federal on down. And he touches on that with his comment, which was, one of the big remaining barriers is costs of preventative regulation. My state, Florida, is trying to make it hard for people to use solar in their homes in order to prop up the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that's not new to uh, this area. We've had conversations in the past about other states in the U.S. that have done something similar. Mm -hmm. It's one, uh, That kind of regulation, there's a spectrum. There's the stupid evil end of the spectrum. And then there's the, well, basic, best case scenario, this is probably what they're doing scenario. Mm -hmm. At one end, the worst case evil end is they're just in such denial about climate change and the positive impacts of solar production that they are taking this route out of an almost spiteful approach. Mm -hmm. The best case scenario is they are giving Florida energy companies time to actually ramp up their own alternative energy production modes mm -hmm. so that the companies don't lose to private consumers owning solar panels. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. I personally yeah. think that's what it is. Yeah. I don't think there's malicious intent in the sense of they're being spiteful. But there is lobbyists, lobbyists yeah, for the companies unsavory. have gotten the regulations to put in place so that the companies have time. Yeah, I mean, it's not apples to apples, but here in Massachusetts, I don't have access to time of use rates at my utility because the lobbyists prevented that from happening. And one of the arguments was, you know, end users find it confusing. It's like, I want time of use rates because I want to be able to charge my Tesla for seven cents a kilowatt hour instead of 24. Right. And I'm happy to charge overnight at a super cheap rate and not do it during the day when it's expensive. Right. It will save me money in the long run. Confusing in air quotes, maybe. Uh, saving me money, yes. 
And there's and they lobbied to not do it to keep it quote simple for consumers. So it's 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 happening everywhere where lobbyists yeah. are doing this for the big benefit of big utilities. And the final comment I wanted to touch on was to bring this back around to one of the things you point out at the beginning of your video, which is solar panels, the industry around it is mm -hmm. good for jobs, good for business, yeah. good for capitalism, effectively. Yeah. yeah. From Rich Ratch. And Rich, I'm going to give you a half point <laughs> because of the alliteration and... Ratch being the last name, I think that that has a certain amount of punch to it. So it's almost in the right vein as Spud McKenzie. And Rich wrote, I've been gainfully employed in the solar industry for 20 years now and have also employed a lot of people in my day and make well over 100000 per year. I have hundreds of customers in California and no one has ever called me and said that in the end, solar was bad decision or investment. And I thought that was a nice little note to end on of... yes. Even if you don't think that solar panels are going to save the world, it's a business and people are able to take care of their families, support themselves, and provide employment for other people in a business that at the end, nobody has complained to him about. So happy customers, <laughs> happy customers yeah. sitting in their homes with who cares where their electricity is coming from. If he's not getting complaints, that is already leagues beyond yeah. my personal content experience. Yeah. So I think that that's a, uh, a good note to end on. Yeah, I agree. As usual, we'll transition to a little bit of pop culture and talk about some of the things that we've been watching using, in Matthew's case, solar panels to watch it. And I'll start. I've got two quick things to talk about. With my girlfriend, we've been on a kick of lost classics or forgotten classics that are popping up on the various streaming services and one that is available right now on the CBS All Access app is a movie with Donald Sutherland called Don't Look Now and it's a movie from the 70s. The story is a couple who lose a child in an accident are trying to recover emotionally from it. On certain levels, it's very easily read symbolically. Uh, Donald Sutherland's character from the very beginning is extremely committed to rationalism. And he maintains that the wife is more open to this alternative vision of reality, including the psychic's response to circumstances and the tension between the two of them pulling in either direction as he continues to deny things that are actually happening. There are certain things about the movie that are a little magical realism. Um, and I mean that not in the form of there's magical realism in the plot, but magical realism in the plot construction, like coincidences happening just to keep the plot moving forward that made me as a writer say like, oh, it's a little weak, but, but overall it's just a well-told ghost story and it is a tremendous example of 70s avant-garde filmmaking, which was happening within mainstream filmmaking. So this is a major motion picture. It's Donald Sutherland. But if you've ever seen anything like the Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland or other movies of that era where they go a little trippy at times. Yeah. 
um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that sort of like suddenly it's psychedelic at moments. Um, this has a little bit of that. It felt a little bit like it was an Italian horror film, especially with the setting. It has a egregiously long and almost brutally vivid sex scene between Donald Sutherland and the major co-star. Um, right. I found it interesting. My response to it was just like, oh my God, how long is this going to go on? But it's like, <laughs> you know, it's two naked bodies rolling around on a bed and <laughs> I'm like, this isn't doing anything for anybody. Like it's, it's just, okay. Okay. We get it. Yeah. They're having sex. They're still having sex. Okay, great. But, um, you wouldn't see that in the movie today. And if you did see it in a movie today, the response I think from the motion picture industry would be like, this is going to be NC 17. Right. Um, and, and this movie was, definitely not viewed as at the time being anything close to that. And as far as horror movies go, which it is categorized as horror, it is nowhere near what would come later with the introduction of the slasher films. It is horror in the classic ghost story vision of horror, which right. is it's unsettling moments, questions of perception and a very well done thrust of can you trust these other characters is a woman with a weakness being lied to by predatory people who see an opportunity to play on her feelings of guilt and loss and so it does some nice things with some sleight of hand that i thought were really good hmm. the other thing i wanted to mention quickly is that hulu has a new anthology series which is called Monsterland, and we tried that out recently. The first episode is a story around what looks like a serial killer who sets his eyes on a young woman with a daughter who is, there's something with the daughter where she is impossible to control. This little girl has tantrums and attacks that are problematic. And it is isolating her young mother who is only 20 years old, clearly became pregnant as a teen. And it deals with questions about personal choices and responsibility and was in effect, it felt like a little mini movie. It was, I thought, very well done. And I'm looking forward to dipping my toe back into the other episodes of Monsterland, which That's cool. it's, yeah, it's, and it's perfectly in time for Halloween, obviously. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that. I'll have to check it out. Uh, on my side of things, there's two things I want to bring up. One's really quick because I actually can't say a lot about it because it will spoil the hell out of it. Um, there's a streaming service called Shudder, which is just a horror movie streaming service. Um, they bought the rights to distribution rights to a Japanese film that was made a few years ago called One Cut of the Dead. If you like things like Night of the Living Dead, this is in that realm of that style of B-level zombie movie and the shtick is that it's done in one take it looks like it's done in one take and <laughs> the reason i can't give anything away is the first half hour of the movie if you're not into that style of horror movie feels just bad like mm. <laughs> bad but if you enjoy that style of b-level horror movie you'll enjoy it but here's the thing is that the first half hour is not what the movie's really about and it does something that I did not see coming. 
And the reason I watched this movie was I watched it blind because I heard a review that was basically said what I'm saying to you right now, which is don't judge it on the first 30 minutes. And they said, we enjoyed it. The first half hour is rough. And I was like, okay, I'm curious. I got to watch this. And so I did. And I'm basically passing that forward saying, holy crap, this movie is nothing like what you think. Do not watch the trailer. Do not read anything about it. But if you enjoy horror movies, that B-level style horror movie, you might want to give this a shot because it's so different from <laughs> what you expect. Mm. That twist after the first half hour is, is, it's just so much fun. It's like at the end of the movie, I would, I had just so much fun with it. That's the best word I can describe. It's fun. Um, yeah. So there's that. Uh, you can sign up for Shutter for a like a free two week trial, and you could watch it for free and then cancel your membership. So it is possible to get to this for free without having to pay for it. If I would actually probably recommend that path. I would say don't spend money on it. But if you have like, you know, a couple hours free, sign up for Shudder, try it out. Uh, the second thing that I've been sort of watching this past week, which I think will actually resonate with a lot of people who watch my channel because of like things like SpaceX uh, and Elon Musk is there's this show on Netflix called Away that stars Hillary Swank, which is about an international, you know, effort to send the first humans to Mars. Hillary Swank is the commander and they it's all about the launch and the journey to Mars and back. But it's kind of like a red herring, even though it is about the journey through space. It's it's a drama. It's really about how this journey will impact not only the astronauts and how it will impact them going there and back, but like how it will impact their relationships with each other, relationships with the family they leave behind. Mm-hmm. how the families that are left behind, how they'll have to adapt and change and the struggles they'll have. So it's it's very much a drama. And I'm, I've been very, I've been finding it very compelling. I've been really, really enjoying it so far. Um, I'm only like four episodes in, so I can't vouch for it being great all the way through, but I'm really enjoying it so far. Uh, so if you're looking for a kind of a, just a drama that's kind of like being hung on the back of a space journey to Mars, um, if that sounds interesting, it's, it's worth worth checking out because once again, it's Netflix. And if you have Netflix, <laughs> it doesn't cost you anything to try an hour to see if you like it. So everybody out there should let us know what they think about both the recent episodes of Matthew's YouTube channel, the recent episodes of the podcast, or the recent episodes of things that we've recommended if they've tried them out or if they have suggestions of their own. You can reach out to us through Twitter at stilltbdfm. You can reach out to me directly at by Sean Farrell and Matthew is available at Matt Farrell and at undecided MF. All of that is a demonstration that both Matthew and I need to work on our username game. Please be sure to watch the latest videos from undecided with Matt Farrell on YouTube. You can find the podcast at still tbd.fm. You can also find it at all major providers such as iTunes and Spotify. Please do subscribe. Give us a rating, a review, and share us with your friends. It really does help the podcast. The podcast helps the channel. The channel helps Matthew. And then Matthew comes up with interesting usernames. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.